Okay, it's our second week, taking a look at how Jesus takes the initiative to bridge any gap, to close any distance between him and the people he loves. Even when we're unaware, even when we're disinterested in doing anything ourselves to bridge this gap. It's our second week, but our passage in Luke chapter 24, it it captures an interchange between Jesus and two travelers on the same day that he was resurrected from the grave just hours actually after he's been raised from the dead. It's our second look at connections that Jesus initiated to eliminate any social distance between him and his followers. I mean, right out of the tomb, fresh out of the tomb, Jesus tries to eliminate all social distancing. Jesus got busy immediately following the resurrection. So let's dive in for the action. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Let me set the stage by paraphrasing the first several verses of this passage. We pick up the action as two companions are walking away from Jerusalem toward a a village about seven miles away called Emmaus. Uh, Probably their hometown, uh, but maybe just a stopover for for the night on their way home. Either way, Emmaus is to be their final destination on this day. Uh, We know that one of the two is named Cleopas. We're told that a little bit later in the text in verse 18. Uh, We don't know, though, if these two are two friends, if they're a married couple, or what. Uh, It really doesn't matter. We just know that they are traveling together on this seven-mile journey, and they're talking about all the things that transpired this previous week, the the Passover week in Jerusalem. So uh, what happened during this Passover week? Because it was a week filled with drama. Here's what they were talking about. Celebrations, sacrifices, shouting crowds, near riots, Roman trials, mock venerations, secret Jewish councils, criminal judgments, horrific scourgings, a cross-carrying parade through the city streets, and a cruel Roman crucifixion of three rebels. Two thieves, two scoundrels crucified on either side of a self-proclaimed Jewish messiah. So these two had much to talk about on their journey. And as these two traveling companions talked, it says that Jesus came up and walked along with them. Think about this. Doesn't announce himself, uh, doesn't declare his identity, doesn't begin to teach or preach. Jesus just quietly joins them on their journey. Verse 16 says that these two travelers were kept from recognizing Jesus, they didn't recognize who he was. Perhaps because of a divine shield, like God put scales on the eyes of these two, possibly. But more likely, uh, more likely, it's just uh, lack of human observation. Uh, We gotta figure out what would keep them from recognizing Jesus. Well, probably the same things that keep you and I from recognizing his presence, like preoccupation with self, worried and concerned far more about how you look, how you appear, how you sound when you speak, rather than focusing on the other person. Another common reason that that we don't recognize Jesus' presence is that we're 
We assume that we know and understand everything that happens, everything that will happen, or everything that could happen to us. And so we discount the possibility of his presence in our life circumstances. Like, we often have no awareness of God's presence, his purposes, or his involvement in our lives when it's happening. Right, so when Jesus joins these two, they don't recognize the Messiah's presence among them, just like we don't recognize his presence most of the time. But Jesus, he joins them anyway. Verse 17, verse 17 says, Jesus begins walking with them and he asks them a question. He asks, what are you two discussing? Right, again, no preaching, no teaching, no identifying who he is. Rather than removing the mystery, Jesus just asks them a question. He says, what are you two talking about? What, what are you discussing? What's your take on all these things? I want you to look at their reaction to Jesus' question. The text says that they stood still, their faces downcast. I want you to think about their reaction. Let, let's analyze the second statement first, their faces being downcast. These two clearly are disappointed by the way things appeared to turn out concerning this would-be Messiah called Jesus. You can just see them like shaking their heads in disappointment, in discouragement, in disbelief that things went south so quickly. Evidently, things had not worked out as they had desired, and the final outcome was not the one they had hoped for. Now, based on the reaction, we can deduce that these two companions, they were Jewish, so you probably knew something of the claims that Jesus made about ushering in a new kingdom. So they certainly had hopes that they'd be freed from Roman oppression. But like all Jews, they had expectations concerning the Messiah, and they had hoped for a different outcome than the one they ex had experienced. So we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few moments. The text also says that they, they stood still after Jesus asked their question. They stood still, like full stop. See, these two are dumbfounded by Jesus' question, incredulous that someone would not know what everybody's talking about. See, so stunned by the, the seeming ignorance of this question, they had to stop in their tracks. They had to stop to ask this stranger how someone could be so out of the loop as to not know what had happened this past week during the Passover feast. And hey friends, if, if you don't see the irony and the humor in this entire interchange, we probably should stop right here because there's a lot going on and there's all these misdirections about who's the clueless one, who's the ignorant one, and who isn't. Are we good? Oh, okay, we'll go on. So these two stop in their tracks they stop in their tracks to inform this stranger of his apparent ignorance of these most public and dramatic events that took place during the Passover feast. These events concerning Jesus, the one they're talking to. I mean, are you getting this? It's, it's comical, really. Look, their comment to Jesus in verse 18. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? said with as much sarcasm and condescension as they could muster. 
Yet instead of revealing who he is, instead of setting the record straight as to his identity, uh, Jesus continues to play along and instead he just asks them another question. Jesus asks, like, what things? Like, what things happened in Jerusalem recently? Jesus must be thinking to himself, I can't wait to hear this. This ought to be good. Well, let us tell you was their reply. They were so eager to explain to Jesus, this clueless stranger, their take on what had happened that they couldn't get out of their mouths fast enough. I'm not sure how Jesus could even keep a straight face through the whole thing, really. I mean, these two describing Jesus, their understanding of who he was and what happened to him. But he did. Jesus did not let on to his identity through the whole thing. So let's assess how these two travelers did at explaining to Jesus who he was and what happened these past few days. Verse 19, they start off by describing Jesus as he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Well, they got most of that statement right, but not completely. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Absolutely true. So these two must have known or have heard of Jesus' authoritative teaching. They must have known some of the miracles he had performed. Any Jewish person who had been in Jerusalem this past week during Passover would have described Jesus just this way. Uh, But did you catch how they described Jesus as a prophet? They, They downgraded him from Messiah to merely a prophet, probably because they still think he's in the tomb. See, they're totally unaware of who they're talking and walking with. Uh, they, They have no idea that they're with the resurrected Savior who's fresh out of the tomb several hours ago. So they slight Jesus and they relegate him to the status of prophet. I mean, little do they know. So one more thing, one more thing that shows that they do not know who they're talking to or talking about, they start by saying, this Jesus was a prophet. I don't know if you caught it, but think about it. They're trying to describe the great I am by starting saying he was. You can't describe Jesus by saying he was anything, unless you start with he was in the tomb, but has been raised from death to life, or by saying he was pierced for our transgressions, but he has now been lifted up to take away our burden of sin, or he was uh, crushed for our iniquities, but he has now secured eternity for all who would believe. That would correctly describe who Jesus was, but yet you can't start off by saying the resurrected one was anything. Jesus is not the great I was. He is the great I am. He is the Lamb of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the one who was and is and is to come. Now that correctly describes who Jesus is. 
not, not he was. So these two companions continue to describe recent events to Jesus. We pick up the action, verse 20. It says, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. They got that completely right. Nailed it on that one. Just, just a side note for you and me. Think about this. These two talking to Jesus about his own crucifixion. I wonder if as they talk, I wonder if Jesus kind of gently slips his hand like under his ribs and just starts gently kind of feeling where they thrust the spear into his side. Or, or I wonder if as they're talking, you know, Jesus kind of just gently kind of traces where they pierced his wrists with the nails. I just wonder what goes through your mind when you're hearing someone else talk about your horrific crucifixion. It's gotta be a strange thing, hearing someone talk about your torturous death from a few hours ago. Okay, so they say the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Then they go on to verse 21, it says, but we had hoped he was to be the one who is going to redeem Israel. That's why their faces are downcast. We had hoped, we had hoped. You see, these two travelers, they had lost hope. They're heading home disappointed and defeated, right? Their expectations were totally unmet. So of course they were sad. They're standing next to hope and they have no hope. They're standing next to power and they have no power. They're standing next to joy and they have no joy. They're standing next to life and they have no life because they didn't know who they were talking to. They had no idea who was standing before them. It just goes to show that you and I, we can miss Jesus' presence even when he's right there, even when he's right there with us. It also demonstrates that Jesus he looks for you. He pursues you. He goes and tries to connect with you even when you have no interest in connecting with him. Jesus comes searching for you even when you're not looking for him, even when you're walking away from him. That's the kind of savior we have. Okay, verse 21 continues. And what is more, they said, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, and the angels said Jesus was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Jesus they did not see. Wow. This passage, these guys are describing to Jesus what happened but this passage tells us a lot about these two travelers. See, it's the third day since the crucifixion. So all this action takes place on Sunday, the afternoon of the resurrection that took place this very morning. And these two have started home already on Sunday afternoon. Even though they, they probably knew some of Jesus' outrageous claims that he was gonna rise from the dead on the third day, which would be this day. I mean, you tell me, if you knew that something amazing or unexpected, unexpected just might happen 
if this would-be Messiah's predictions about himself came true? Wouldn't you leave Jerusalem like after the full day had transpired? I mean, wouldn't you stick around for the entire day at least, knowing that the third day is the big day where something might happen if anything is gonna happen at all? Yet these two, they left early. They left in the afternoon of the resurrection Sunday. I mean, they left early. I'm sure they had their reasons. Maybe, maybe they wanted to get to Emmaus before it got dark. Uh, maybe they wanted to uh, beat the foot traffic. Maybe they just were so eager to get home. But still, they, they couldn't even wait around for the entire day. I mean, really? They, they left too soon. They checked out too early. You know what? They quit hoping too easily. I mean, they didn't even stay for the entire day. And it actually gets worse. They knew, they left knowing that the third day was supposed to be the big day. Again, if anything is going to happen, resurrection, revolution, something, uh, that it would happen on this third day. But they, they left. But they also heard some women in their group say that they had found the tomb empty when they had visited the tomb this morning. I mean, upon hearing this, some of their companions went and investigated the tomb for themselves, and they confirmed what the women had said. It was true that the grave clothes were there, but the tomb was unoccupied. Beyond that, two angels informed those who visited the empty tomb in the morning that Jesus was alive. They claimed Jesus was alive. I mean, all this, all this, and these two are headed home early? I mean, are you kidding me? Really? You couldn't even stick around for the entire day? I mean, even after hearing rumors of empty tombs and talking angels and the the possibility of Jesus being raised from the dead, they're worried about getting home before dark? Come on. How could someone leave all this drama? I mean, I'm getting fired up just thinking about this. Here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway for you and me. God's timing and our timing are not the same. Hardly ever. Almost never. See, most of the time, we lose hope too quickly. We leave too early. We quit too easily. And we end up disappointed, discouraged, and defeated when the resurrected one is right there beside us, right there with us. But we've made up our mind. We've made up our mind because our expectations were not met, so we've given up hope. And so we quit. We quit praying. We quit hoping. We quit trying. We quit believing. I mean, how foolish we are. And how slow of heart to believe Jesus and trust him and take him at his word. So, as your virtual tour guide for this seven-mile journey, can I make a recommendation for both you and me so we don't make the same mistake as these two travelers? Don't, Don't judge the journey before it's over. 
Don't judge the journey before it's over. Don't rush to judgment regarding your life, your circumstances, your challenges, and God's involvement or lack thereof in your life's events. See, maybe he's working on your behalf and you just don't see it. You just don't feel it because he is working. Jesus declared as much in John 5, 17. Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Man, you and I need to remember this. We often don't see God's hand in our lives while he's working, but only as we look back only in the rear view mirror, only as we reflect, then we see his hand at work in our lives. You know, maybe the issue, maybe the issue has more to do with your ill-advised, preconceived expectations than God's supposed lack of activity in your life. So do not judge the journey before it's over. Uh, I need to remind myself all the time about this. And so I go to the Apostle Paul, what he tells us in Romans 8, 28. Here's my paraphrase. Paul writes, in the end, in the end, God works all things together for good for those that love God. All things for your good. So I remind you and me, if your circumstances in your life are not good, it's not the end. Okay, back to our passage. Here's where the story takes a turn. Jesus finally responds. He's kept his mouth shut long enough. So here's what he says. Here's what Jesus says in response to everything these two companions have told him. Again, my paraphrase. Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute, friends. All these things that happen should not come as a surprise for those who know the God of the Bible, I mean, doesn't scripture outline that all these things were to happen before the Messiah returns to heaven? Jesus was saying, don't be surprised. And Jesus' response is followed by verse 27. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Verse 27 reads, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I mean, that had to be the greatest sermon ever told. Can you imagine how good that sermon was? I mean, you wouldn't want it to end. And apparently, these two travelers agree because as they approached Emmaus, it says these two strongly urged Jesus to stay with him rather than continuing on his journey. No surprise here. Because once you've walked and talked with Jesus, once you've spent time with the resurrected one, you don't want them to ever leave. So Jesus decides to stay with them. It's another principle of how Jesus works, right? See, when you invite him in, he always says yes. He always comes in. But he leaves it up to you whether to welcome him in or not. Right? He says as much in Revelation 3.20 to the lukewarm believers from the church of Laodicea. Here's what Jesus says. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and invites me in, I will come in. But Jesus leaves the choice up to us. You and me decide. You invite him, he'll come in. It's your choice. Okay, back to the action and we'll wrap this thing up. So Jesus stays and he sits down to a meal with these two companions. Verse 30. 
when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Finally, finally they recognize him. The text says that when Jesus gave them the bread, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. What did they see at that moment that they had not seen before? Some scholars say that God miraculously, supernaturally opened their eyes at this point. Possible, maybe, maybe, but I don't think so. I think it's way simpler than that. Let's read the verse again because I want you to see this. The text says that Jesus took the bread, gave thanks. No doubt he prayed the Jewish prayer that's offered before almost every evening meal. The prayer goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Amen. And after praying this, Jesus tears the bread and gives it to them, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. Still not seeing it? Okay. One more time. One more time so we don't miss it. Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. At which point the resurrected Jesus tears the bread. The bread of life tears the bread and gives it to them. And they recognize him. What did they see that they had not seen before? They see his nail-scarred hands. They see the wounds that would heal them. They see the scars that would save them. You see, they, they see the one who has been pierced for their iniquities, the one who is slain for their redemption. They see Jesus and the sacrifice he made on their behalf, and their eyes were opened, and it changed everything. <laughs> the first seven miles of this journey were hopeless, helpless, lifeless. The seven miles back to Jerusalem that night for these two were filled now with hope, joy, passion, faith, life, energy, purpose, and destiny because they had been with the resurrected one. They had been with the resurrected Jesus. Here's what they're saying now. We're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. You see, everything has changed because their eyes have been opened. They saw Jesus for who he is, and hope is resurrected, faith re-energized, purpose restored, and destiny intact. Because God has raised this Jesus, the bread of life, from death to life, out of the earth, and given it to men and women. He's been raised from the dead, and they saw it with their own eyes. They know it's true. They saw the resurrected one, and he has conquered the grave and it has changed them forever. So here's our prayer. Here's our prayer. Pray this with me. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to see you, 
to see what you've done, to recognize what you're doing, and to see where you're working. This is our corporate prayer. Open our eyes. We wanna see what you see. We invite you, we invite you to go with us on this journey. We invite you to come in. Come in, Lord Jesus. Come in and open our eyes. And all God's people agreed, amen. Hey, if you're new or today is your first time tuning in with us, let us know you stopped by. Go to blackrock.org slash guests and fill out our connect form. That way someone on staff can reach out to you and make sure that you get connected and find community here. We are so glad everyone tuned in today. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week.